Judas, my friend, replied Jesus, why are you here? Then the others came up, seized hold of Jesus, and held him. Suddenly one of Jesus' disciples drew his sword, slashed at the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. At this Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its proper place. All those who take the sword die by the sword. Do you imagine that I could not appeal to my father and he would at once send more than twelve legions of angels to defend me? But then, how would the scriptures be fulfilled which say that all must take place, all this must take place? And then Jesus spoke to the crowds around him, So you've come out with your swords and staves to capture me like a bandit, have you? Day after day I sat teaching in the temple and you never laid a finger on me. But all this is happening as the prophets prophet said it would. And at this point all the disciples deserted him and made their escape. The men who had seized Jesus took him off to Caiaphas, the high priest, in whose house the scribes and elders were assembled. Peter followed him at a safe distance right up to the high priest's courtyard. Then he went inside and sat down with the servants and waited to see the end. Meanwhile, the chief priests and the whole council did all they could to find false evidence against Jesus to get him condemned to death. They failed completely. Even after a number of perjurers came forward, they still failed. In the end, two of these stood up and said, This man said, I can pull down the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest rose to his feet and addressed Jesus. Have you no answer? What about the evidence of these men against you? But Jesus was silent. Then the high priest said to him, I command you by the living God to tell us on your oath if you are Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, I am. Yes, and I tell you that in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. At this the high priest tore his robes and cried, That was blasphemy. Where is the need for further witnesses? Look, you've heard the blasphemy. What's your verdict now? And they replied, he deserves to die. Then they spat in his face and knocked him about, and some slapped him, crying, Prophesy, you Christ, who was that who hit you? All this time Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a maidservant came up to him and said, Weren't you with Jesus, the man from Galilee? But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Then... When he had gone out into the porch, another maid caught sight of him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I don't know the man. A few minutes later, those who were standing about came up to Peter and said to him, You certainly are one of them, you know. It's obvious from your accent. At that he began to curse and swear, I tell you, I don't know the man. Immediately... The cock crew, and the words of Jesus came back into Peter's mind. 
before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Well, now, this evening, if you will turn to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 46. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 47. You will find on your seats the notes of last week's study upon the agony of Gethsemane. Now, this week we are coming to um, the next passage which we have entitled The Betrayal and Arrest of the King. The Betrayal and Arrest of the King. From verse 47 until verse uh, 56. Whilst Christ was still speaking the last words that we have recorded in verse 46, when he um, said, Rise, let us be going, or as the New English Bible puts it, Up, let us go forward, see, my betrayer is at hand. Whilst those words were still on his lips, a great crowd burst into the garden and surrounded him and the disciples and... Uh, the next stage had begun. The king had not had long to wait for the cup to be presented to him. For those of you who were here last week, you will remember that the, the thing, that, that the phrase that, as it were, is the key to Gethsemane is this phrase, this cup, if it be possible, let this cup passed from me. And a little later he had prayed, my father, if, um, let me just read the words in verse 42, um, when he said, my father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, thy will be done. And that was the third time he prayed the same words. Now the king had not long to wait for the cup to be presented to him. He had no sooner come back to the sleeping and drowsy disciples, no sooner had he aroused them from their sleep and said, Up, let us go forward, when the whole of the garden, the stillness of the garden, was suddenly broken by noise darkness of the garden, suddenly a blaze of torches and lanterns and an, as an enormous crowd poured into the garden, every side. They evidently had no idea who they were looking for, who, what he looked like. They knew it was Jesus of Nazareth. And so it is quite possible that they surrounded every single man they found uh, within the precincts of that garden. As far as we know, there were, eleven, there were just the eleven and the Lord Jesus. And we do know from Mark that there was a young man there too, that it's generally thought was Mark uh, himself. For that we wait till we come to the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> the um, 
it is more than probable that Christ had seen uh, this mob uh, coming for quite a time whilst he was praying, although he was in terrible anguish, it is more than likely uh, that he saw so large a crowd and um, so, in one sense, so singular a crowd coming out of the Golden Gate and, and coming down to the Garden of uh, Gethsemane. They were all, we're told, in John chapter 18 and verse uh, 3, we're given this little bit of information that they, the crowd were carrying not only swords and cudgels or clubs, they were also carrying lanterns and torches. In John 18 verse 3, you will find that information. Judas then, having received the band of soldiers and, and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Uh, another very interesting little point about this great crowd, for you see Matthew uh, says in verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd. Now, some have thought this to be an exaggeration, but the word used in John 18 and verse 3, having received the band of soldiers, was cohort, a cohort of soldiers. And the word officers are, are the temple guards. So you've got two groups of people here. You have first the Levitical guard of the temple, uh, belonging and under the authority of the chief priests and the elders, the Sanhedrin, and on the other, you've got a cohort of Roman soldiers. Now, a cohort of Roman soldiers numbered generally between 500 and 600 men. Whether they were on full strength, we don't know. But certainly, it was a great crowd. This crowd, if it was a full cohort, it was up to 600 men armed with torches and lanterns. The temple guards beside would have been another sizable group uh, apart from the others. Now, it is quite possible uh, that um, <coughs> such a crowd would have been visible from the Garden of Gethsemane for some time as they made their way down uh, to it uh, from uh, Jerusalem, down to and across the little Kidron torrent, winter torrent, which was dried up, and, 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 and then up onto the other side. It also would have provided a most unusual sight because it happened to be Passover night and it was not the night you normally saw the Roman soldiers. They were normally very, very careful to keep out of sight during festival because of the Jewish uh, scruples about becoming infected by Gentile uncleanness. So generally, the Roman governor kept all Roman soldiers, they were all there, more than normal, because of the possibility of rioting, but they were kept out of sight. So it was an unusual sight on the Passover night, uh, and possibly the eve of the Sabbath, to see such a crowd um, coming down, well-armed, and uh, with... Uh, um, uh, all these lanterns and, and torches. <coughs> well, whether the Lord had noted them or not, uh, certainly um, 
he knew it when they burst into the garden, and so did the rest of the disciples. Uh, John, in his account, uh, uh, gives us a, an additional little sidelight. Uh, he tells us that the Lord went out to them and said, Whom seek ye? It wasn't just uh, 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 that he was surrounded, but uh, when they came, he went forward and asked who it was they were uh, seeking. It was also, it also presented a most extraordinary spectacle in this sense that it was a combination of mutually suspicious and opposing elements. First of all, you had the, the Pharisee elders. Then you had the Sadducee chief priests. Now, these two groups hated each other. They were theologically at opposite ends, rather like liberals and fundamentalists of the extreme kind. They were at opposite ends in their theological view of most things. And then, again, there was the temple guard of Levites. They were the Levites. <clears throat> and then there was the uh, cohort of Gentile Roman soldiers. Now, normally, um, the Jews, whether Sadducee or Pharisee, looked upon the Gentiles as dogs. Uh, they were the outsider. They were the, the, they were the dirty, unclean pagans. But it is an extraordinary spectacle that we see this night. Uh, this great crowd is a combination of all these mutually opposing and suspicious elements. In all probability, there was a hired rabble. Now, of course, if you don't know anything about the East, you don't know anything about hiring rabbles. But in the ancient East and today, rabbles can still be, mobs can still be hired. And it was quite a thing in old Jerusalem and elsewhere that if you wanted some dirty work done, you hired a mob. You've got it a bit in London, actually, tonight. Shouldn't go on the tape recorder. But you've got it in the kind of um, um, protection racket. It's mobsters. Ready to be hired out. In all probability, there was a hired rabble here. Later on, the, the rabble that uh, um, cried out, crucify, crucify him, were a, a, a carefully... Um, planted, uh, selected and uh, crowd planted amongst the crowd in, in order to secure um, Pilate's assent to the death sentence on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's in the future. But um, it's in all probability, along with this cohort of Ro Gentile Roman soldiers and the Levitical guard and the chief priests and the uh, uh, elders uh, there was a hired uh, rabble, all led by Judas Iscariot. Quite a spectacle. It is evident that the majority of the crowd did not know Christ by sight. Now, this may su be surprising to some. Judas Iscariot had, had to prearrange a sign with the all so that they didn't all seize the wrong man. Um, there was evidently a real possibility that in the panic, 
or the possibility in in the event of the of the disciples of Christ and Christ resisting arrest, they would get the wrong man. So Judas Iscariot said, "This is the sign. When we get there, I'll go quietly forward, and the man I kiss is the man. Get him. Let go of the rest, but get him. He is the man. He is Jesus of." Uh, uh, Nazareth. Matthew tells us that when uh, Judas had thus kissed Christ, and it's rather interesting, the word in uh, verse um, 49 for kiss is different to the word in, uh, in, in, in verse um, 47. I'm sorry, 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I shall kiss is the man, sees him. Came up to Jesus at once and said, Hail Master, and he kissed him. But the word there is the intensive form and really means to kiss with fervor. And it is a little sidelight upon the character of Judas Iscariot that when he saw the Lord, he went up to him with great affection, great affection, and said, Master, good evening. <coughs> Hello. And he embraced him. And he kissed him with fervor. Now Matthew tells us that when uh, Judas Iscariot had kissed the Lord so affectionately and with feeling, and after Christ had said, do that for which you have come, that's, a, by the way, a better rendering than why are you here. You will find that all the modern versions are evenly divided as to whether they should put do that for which you've come or what, why are you here. Um, one scholar has said probably the best way to translate it would be what an errand to be on. What an errand to be on. Well, whatever the Lord said, he meant you've come all right, do it. After he'd said that, they seized him and held him fast. Now, it is interesting that when they seized the Lord, that is, they, they, they suddenly got hold of him, uh, took him. When they held him fast, it was evidently in the, the type of vice-like grip that the Roman soldiery used to arrest people, which was to, rather like our own police, to force uh, the knuckle up between the uh, shoulder blades and put the heel uh, between the legs in the instep of the right foot. So that's how they caught the Lord. They seized him and then they gripped him so that he couldn't move. The other Gospels, and we're not going to stay with it, the other Gospels supply quite a lot of details as to what happened between the kiss and the arrest. For there was a certain amount of conversation and uh, between those uh, two. It was, according to Matthew, at this point that Peter drew one of the two swords they'd taken with them from the Passover <laughs> upper room and uh, slashed off the high priest slave's ear. Now if you uh, look you will find first in verse 51 
in uh, Matthew 26, verse 51. Behold, one of them that were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and smote the servant of the high priest and struck off his ear. Now, if you compare that with John chapter 18 and verse 10 and 11, we read, Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Now, the servant's name was Malchus. If you turn to Luke chapter 22, you will find uh, a little more information how they came to have the two swords. Luke chapter 22, verse 36, And the Lord said unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise a wallet. And he that hath none, let him sell his cloak and buy a sword. For I say unto you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was reckoned with the transgressors. For that which concerneth me hath fulfillment. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, It is enough. Someone asked me a little while ago, Why did the Lord um, uh, seemingly agree to their taking two swords and when they used them, rebuke them? But I don't think that's the point at all. The fact is that Peter's action was based on a misunderstanding of what the Lord had said. And when the Lord said it's enough, he didn't mean, yes, use the sword. He meant, oh dear, that's quite enough. Uh, two swords, that's not, you don't think you're going to win the kingdom of God with two swords. Probably two old rusty ones at that. <laughs> Don't think you're going to do the work of God that way, it's enough. They hadn't understood what he was getting at. He didn't mean that they actually got to literally go out and sell everything and buy swords. He meant that the time had come now of darkness. The time had come when they'd got to be, uh, they'd got to watch carefully. The time of trial had come, uh, and so on. But what this incident does reveal is that Peter who is so often maligned, uh, I think especially in evangelical circles, uh, it, does, it does at least reveal uh, this incident that Peter's declarations were not just empty-headed and meaningless. When he said, I'll die with you, he genuinely meant it. And furthermore, he, uh, he revealed it in action. He was the only one who drew the sword and did something. And I have no doubt that he didn't just injure a, a, a sort of harmless man. I, I, I don't know. One day we shall know. Probably Malchus was a nasty bit of work. <coughs> Anything to do with the high priest? He very probably was. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, uh, the, the fact the matter is, I'm not for one single moment defending Peter, but I do think it reveals that his declarations of being ready to die for the Lord and die with the Lord were not just, as some people seem to say, empty-headed. Oh, Peter can't put a thing on what he says. It's not so. Peter expressed often what was a genuine uh, desire and, and intention in his heart 
Well, when, when the arrest came, Peter was the one who drew the sword and struck out from the Lord. Maybe it, it indeed, it's not maybe, it was a misguided um, thing to do. But at least it reveals that he wasn't merely an empty-headed uh, uh, man full of great uh, confessions and declarations uh, which had no meaning uh, at all. Well, whatever we may feel about that, this we can say, and I think it is one of the most touching things in the whole New Testament next to Mary's waking of her alabaster cruise. This terrible scene of darkness and treachery to be made still darker in a few minutes by all the disciples forsaking Christ and fleeing for their lives became the scene of Christ's, Christ's last miracle of love and grace seized by the soldiers in a vice-like grip of the temple police. The Lord uh, rebukes Peter, and according to Luke, he, he asks for leave to touch Malchus, and he healed him. I think there is no other incident in the New Testament that so reveals the beauty and the glory of Christ's love than this incident. After all, the, 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 the dying thief appealed to the Lord to save him. Mary Magdalene was a, a little bit of human debris. She appealed to the Lord to do something for her. This man was probably a very nasty, evil man. We don't know. Perhaps I'm maligning him. But what we do know is he was certainly an enemy of Christ. And certainly was there with one intention, and that was to see that Christ was arrested and taken to the chief priest, and he knew very well what was lying in store for him once they had got him to Annas and Caiaphas. I say, if we look at Luke 22, verse 51, Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye them thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. I must say that although I am not enamored of the New English Bible, I very, very impressed with the marginal note upon this verse in it. it. It says this. Let me read it. One of them struck high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, let them have their way. Then he touched the man's ear and healed him. But this is the marginal note. Or, let me do as much as this and touching the man's ear, he healed him. I think that there's something authentic about that. Something very authentic about it. You see, the fact was the Lord's arms were not free. 
They weren't free to touch anyone. Let me do as much as this. And they released one arm and he touched the man and he was healed instantly. Well, as I say, there is perhaps no other incident which, in the New Testament which reveals the beauty and the glory of Christ's love more than this. Did Malchus become a child of God? That's one of the mysteries. We won't know till we're in the glory. But within a few minutes of entering, we shall know. Did Malchus become a child of God? Did that miracle performed in the last miracle that Christ ever performed change his life? Did it become an avenue for the grace of God? Well, who, who furnished us with the facts of what happened from the inside in the household of Annas and in the household of Caiaphas? John didn't. John was in the courtyard. Well, of course, John did know people in the family, so we could possibly have had it that way. No one else. Unless, just conceivably, Malchus was finally converted. It is interesting that John mentions him by name. Malchus, he says. Rather like he mentions Simon of Cyrene, over whom the ancient tradition is that he became a child of God and took the gospel to Cyrene. Well, we don't know. Uh, but, uh, nor do we know what was the reaction of the crowd. I've often wondered, there was this crowd, an enormous crowd, armed to the teeth, there with, with one intention to arrest the Lord, and before their very eyes they see a miracle. It is an interesting side like on miracles that it doesn't necessarily stop the course of events, nor does it convert people. They went straight on with their work. And they seized him and arrested him. Were there any others who were finally led to God through that last miracle of uh, love? This terrible scene also becomes the uh, occasion when we see once more the majesty and the authority of God's king. It's a scene of darkness, it's a scene of treachery, as I've said, but it becomes the occasion when there is one more radiant outshining of the authority and majesty of Christ. You see in verse uh, fifty. Three, verse 53 do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send twelve legions of angels but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled now this is interesting one legion numbered approximately six thousand men Therefore, if my mathematics are correct, and they're not normally, um, 12 legions should, should be 72,000. What a display of majesty. Listen to it again. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and that he will not send me now 72,000 angels? <laughs> That lot would have been finished. <laughs> Destroy Jerusalem. 
turned the whole place upside down. Seventy-two thousand. Twelve legions. Oh, what a display of majesty and authority on the part of Christ. There, only, only, only less than half an hour, an hour at the most before, he'd been in the most terrible anguish. Now, there is a calmness about him. There is a dignity about him. There is a majesty about him. The arrest has come. The betrayal has taken place. Do you not think that I could appeal to my father and there would be here instantly 72,000 angels? If you turn to John uh, chapter 18, we have another interesting little bit of information thrown upon this passage. John 18 from verse 4. Jesus, therefore knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and saith unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When therefore he said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. That's all he said. The word he is not even there. It's just, I am. And they retreated and fell to the ground. Display of inherent royalty. Intrinsic kingliness. Just, I am. They fell back. It is interesting that if you read on... When he said to them, let the others go free, they seized him. I say then that this is rather wonderful, that this becomes, this terrible scene becomes the occasion for a display of the um, majesty and authority of God's uh, king. Note that little word. I think it goes to the heart of Calvary. Thinkest thou not that I cannot? You think of it. Thinkest thou not that I cannot? And it goes on, appeal to my father, beseech my father, and he shall send me now. Twelve legion. Just think of those words. Thinkest thou not that I cannot? The fact is... The fact was, and the fact is, that Christ could easily have brought in the whole power of heaven to pulverize and liquidate not only that group there, but the whole of Jerusalem, if necessary. But he did not. Why? Because when they finally seized him and bound him, it was only because he allowed them to seize him and bind them. And that goes to the whole, to the root of Calvary. When finally he was taken and led away, seemingly outward, so helpless, so weak, it was because he allowed himself uh, to be taken. 
Only thus could the scriptures be fulfilled. He says so twice in this passage in verse 54 and verse 56. He says, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? In verse 56, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Only by being seized and bound and led away could, in fact, the scriptures be fulfilled, the purpose of God be realized, and the work Christ had come to do accomplished. Now, when Peter and the disciples saw Christ seized at last and giving himself up, seemingly, as I've said, so weak and so helpless. Can you imagine it? They had never seen the Lord in this condition before. They had never see, seen men lay hands. They had seen many times people try to, and he'd gone right through them. Never had they see, seen godless men <coughs> lay their hands on him violently. Never had they seen some man uh, twisting his arm right up his back with his leg forward and another arm perhaps round his throat so that he couldn't move. Suddenly it seemed as if the one who seemed to be so powerful was so weak. The one who seemed to have all authority seemed to have no authority. The one who could do everything, seemed to be able to do nothing. And with that, they all forsook him and fled. Not one stayed behind. Panic seized them all. As firmly as those men had seized Christ. And they ran for their lives. I wonder sometimes whether it was the Lord's word when he said, why didn't you take me when I was in the temple? I was there so many times. You never took me. They may have been, a, they may that they wouldn't want to. They may have been able to say to him, we tried two or three times, but you went through the midst of us. And we just were unable to put our hand, lay a hand on you. But I often wonder whether it was when he said, as is recorded in Luke, uh, chapter 22 and verse 53, this is your hour and the power of darkness. He says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Those words didn't strike terror into the hearts of the eleven. And they fled what we can say is this, that the words of the king in verse 31 of this chapter uh, had been fulfilled within three hours. These were the words he had said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. <laughs> within three hours those words had been fulfilled literally. Now, one other point we must say before we leave this, uh, just one or two little points uh, about this passage. We ought to note that even though all the disciples forsook the Lord and fled fro from him, it, it is recorded that Peter and John recovered from their panic, from the first panic. 
and evidently went back. Um, they, it, it, we are told that they followed at a great distance. For instance, verse 58 says this, but Peter followed him at a distance. I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version. Peter followed him at a distance. If you look at John uh, chapter 18, verse 15 to 17, we read this. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known unto the high priest, and entered in with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Um, but Peter was standing at the door without. So the other disciple who was known unto the high priest went out and spake unto her that kept the door and brought in Peter. The maid therefore that kept the door saith unto Peter, Art thou also one of this man's disciples? Uh, now there were two disciples then who recovered after the first panic and followed the Lord at a distance. But it was at a distance. And in one case, certainly, it was to lead to a more terrible fall than the first. Now, take note, all of you, it is a dangerous thing to follow the Lord from a distance. Either be all out or nothing. It's a dangerous thing. It led poor Peter into a lot of trouble to follow the Lord at a distance. Either press near or don't at all. Uh, another thing we ought to say is that the king had known loneliness through his life. And certainly in the last hours up to this point, uh, he had known loneliness especially was it accentuated in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now he was to know the beginning of forsakenness. That is something he had not known before. Loneliness is one thing, dear child of God. Forsakenness is another. To be lonely uh, is uh, sometimes a terrible experience, but to be forsaken terrible, much more terrible. He was to know the beginning of forsakenness from this point. It was the first taste of what was to come, and it was to find its culmination when his father forsook him on the cross. It began at his arrest. All hell was straining to be let loose. The uh, venomous and, and implacable hatred of the ages and the bitterest jealousy of Satan was waiting to vent its fury upon him, restrained as yet by the hand of God. It was waiting. But the king had already won this battle. And that goes back to last week's study. He had already won this battle. He had won it in Gethsemane. He was ready for the work. 
And he was ready for the very worst that Satan could do. John records for us the words of our Lord Jesus at this point, which are not recorded in Matthew, in chapter 18 of John, verse 11. The cup which the Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Those words are beautiful. They represent a great step forward from Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And again, Father, uh, if, except I, if, uh, 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 except I drink the cup, it is uh, not possible for it to pass away, then let it be so. But now, it is the, these words, the cup which the Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? He'd won the battle. The battle was already won. He was moving forward to the final phase of his earthly ministry and life. And indeed, to the accomplishment of the work which God had given him to do. Well, now we pass on to the next passage, which is the trial of the king before the Sanhedrin. From, ver from verse 57 of, of chapter 26 uh, unto, to verse um, 10 of chapter 27. Now, of course, we're not going to be able to cover that uh, tonight. Uh, by any means. What I'm going to do is just introduce um, the subject of the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ and next week we will take it up. Um, before, in fact, we can look at the passage, we need to say a few things especially about the trial of Christ. It is hard for us to understand just how much Christ had to go through before he was crucified, let alone to understand how much he went through on the cross. I believe there are very, very few Christians who realize or appreciate what the Lord went through between the Passover meal and the crucifixion. I say again, it's very hard for us to understand all that he, just what he had to go through. We must remember that from the point that we are now in Matthew, to his crucifixion, not his death, but his crucifixion, his actual crucifixion, his actual uh, being nailed to the tree, he had only 10 or 11 hours left. 10 or 11 hours. That is, from this moment until really about 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. That's all. In those 10 11 hours there was not one single moment of rest or peace and there was not one single let up in the pressure and the strain 
uh, that was brought to bear upon him. Now remember, it is not only that something has been taken out of our Lord, physically and mentally, uh, in the garden. I say no man can go through the anguish and the agony through which he passed in Gethsemane and come out with, without some nervous and emotional exhaustion. When a man is in such agony that an angel from heaven has to strengthen him for the worst part, and in after the angel, after the angel has strengthened him, he's, he's, his sweat became as great drops of blood, blood-tinged sweat, sign of the most incredible mental uh, stress and pressure known in medical history on only a very few rare occasions. And nearly everyone died uh, who, who knew it, who, who had experienced it. I say no person can go through that kind of anguish without being nervously and emotionally exhausted. Now he came out of that experience to face, from this point, ten or eleven hours of unending court hearings. Official and unofficial. And not only just hearings, but every form of indignity, of physical abuse, of, of mental pressure uh, that could be uh, sought up. We have to understand this if we, are to under, if we are to understand what the Lord went through before he was crucified. Now, that is what we are going to study uh, next week. The trial of the king before the Sanhedrin followed by the trial of the king before the Roman governor. Now the trial of the Lord Jesus falls into two clear, clearly distinct parts. There was what we call the ecclesiastical trial <laughs> or the religious trial, ecclesiastical or religious and secondly the civil trial. Uh, or really political trial, if you like. Um, the first, the ecclesiastical trial, falls into three parts. There was a preliminary investigation, there was an unofficial session which lasted some time, and there was a final official session. The civil or political trial under the Roman governor also falls into three parts. First, there was the trial under Pontius Pilate, where Christ was acquitted. Then he was sent to Herod, who also acquitted him. And then he was sent back to Pontius Pilate, who wanted to acquit him again, but was forced by circumstances, by pressure being brought to bear on him, to condemn him and to assent to the death sentence. Now all this, which, dear friend, would normally take, I suppose, uh, today, uh, some weeks or whole months was compressed 
into ten or eleven hours at the most. That may give you some little idea of what our Lord went through in the last hours of his life. Remember that from the Passover meal to the moment he was crucified on the cross, he never ate another morsel. It gives you just some little idea of all that he passed through. Now, we are at present concerned with the ecclesiastical trial, what we call the trial of the king before the Sanhedrin. This ecclesiastical trial, as I've said, is divided into three. The, the, the first is the preliminary investigation before Annas. Now, Annas is an extraordinary man. Uh, this preliminary investigation is recorded for us in John, Gospel, chapter 18, verse 13, and from verse 19 to 24. I'm not going to read it. You'll find it in the notes if you want to um, look it up. Um, now, Annas had been the high priest and was deposed by the Roman governor. Uh, his, he was father-in-law to the present high priest, Caiaphas, and he was a most extraordinarily influential and powerful man in jury. I think I'm right in saying that four of his five sons became high priests. I'm sure through no merit. But simply because father was a very powerful and influential force in a jury. Finally, of course, not only did four, I think I'm right in saying four of his five sons, either four or five, um, uh, not an, but his son-in-law uh, was a uh, high priest uh, in the year in which Christ died. Now, when the Lord Jesus was first taken prisoner, John tells us that he was taken to Annas' home, and there there was a preliminary investigation or hearing under Annas. Annas wanted to see Christ. He wanted to sort of get the feel, uh, weigh him up see what perhaps was the way to do it, how he could um, advise his son, and how he could pull strings perhaps in the background all over the place to ensure that this troublemaker of, I, 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 amongst uh, Jews uh, should be finally uh, silenced. Uh, the second part of the ecclesiastical trial was the unofficial session of the Sanhedrin under Caiaphas. Now there we find we find this in the passage in Matthew, Matthew twenty six, fifty seven to sixty eight. We find it mentioned very briefly in John eighteen, verse twenty four and verse twenty eight, and we find it in Mark fourteen and verse fifty three to sixty five. Now this was an illegal session. We shall see that because Matthew deals with that quite fully. It was an illegal session of the Sanhedrin. The third um, uh, part of the ecclesiastical trial was the official trial of Christ before the Sanhedrin. Um, really, all this did uh, was to legalize the findings of the unofficial and illegal session. You see, the illegal session met at night when it was forbidden to hear a charge of, of, of capital punishment at night or on the eve of a Sabbath. 
In actual fact, the session was on the eve of the Sabbath and at night. So to overcome that, they called a special hastily convened full session, full gathering of the council at daybreak. <laughs> they couldn't wait longer. Uh, it had to be done at daybreak to get the whole filthy job over with so that he could be got off the cross and out of sight before the Sabbath uh, started. So they hastily convened a session, uh, which was a legal session, and there it just rubber-stamped the findings of the longer, unofficial, informal uh, session during the night. Now, Matthew does not mention the preliminary investigation before Annas at all, and he only briefly records the official session of the Sanhedrin. In these verses, he dwells on the unofficial uh, session. Well, one other thing before we close tonight. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of Jewry, and the Sanhedrin of Jerusalem was called the Great Sanhedrin. It had complete jurisdiction in all civil and religious affairs to do with Jews in Judea, and indeed it's Authority was recognized throughout the Jews of the dispersion in the Roman Empire and uh, beyond. The only exception to their jurisdiction in all civil and religious affairs to do with Jews was when it was a case of capital punishment. Whenever a case of capital punishment for uh, uh, concerning capital punishment came up, they could only hear, pass their verdict, and pass on the whole case to the highest court of all in one sense, which was the Roman governor's uh, personal court, if you like. I mean, it wasn't really a court. It was just that he had to give his assent to all cases concerning the death Sentence. Now, that explains why, when the Sanhedrin wanted to put Christ to death, they couldn't do it without Pontius Pilate's um, uh, assent. That's why we've got the dilemma uh, contained in these uh, verses. Now, Matthew tells us that this illegal and unofficial session of the Sanhedrin was held in the high priest's home. As I've said, it was illegal because it was the eve of the Sabbath and because it was held at night. That's, you'll find that in verses 57 and 58. The sole objective of this illegal clandestine session was to secure evidence for passing the death sentence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That was its sole objective. It was not the least bit interested in any evidence for him. It was only interested in obtaining and securing evidence upon which it could convict him and pass the uh, death sentence. The most superficial reading of uh, these verses clearly reveals that there was hardly a semblance of justice in the proceedings. Uh, 
I mean, I think any fool can see that. They sought false testimony from false witnesses. So, so uh, uh, hastily summoned was this session because, of course, you remember they had said, not during the Passover, Judas had upset all that. And now they'd had to quickly get everyone together on Passover night. Get them all away from their councillors and senators, away, as it were, from their, from their families and, and, and the festivities at home. Rather like Christmas uh, Day, you know, Christmas night. Or calling everyone out uh, from home. Hastily convened session. And uh, uh, so hastily convened was it that... Uh, Unfortunately, they hadn't been able to do their job very well. And the witnesses, the testimony, the false testimony of the false witnesses just did not tally. Now, they did try to keep some semblance of justice for one of the, the most rigid regulations of Jewish law is that in the mouth of two witnesses it shall be established. Of course, that's biblical. In the mouth of two witnesses it shall be established. Never accept evidence on, uh, 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 from the lips of one. So, uh, unfortunately, as they thought, it must have been, in one sense, there must have been some humour almost in it. As one after another came forward and gave their evidence, and it just didn't tally. You can just see the chief priest sort of We'll never get the evidence that it's going to go on like this. I mean, we'll be here all night. Last two witnesses came forward. If we uh, read in verse 60, two witnesses came forward and they said their, their testimony did tally. They had heard Christ say, both of them, they had heard Christ say, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Now, whether this information had finally been written down and given to them, or, or <coughs> what had happened, we don't know. But the fact is, it, 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 it is interesting in two ways. First of all, it was a terrible change of what the Lord had said. And secondly, it is a wonderful confirmation of this saying of the Lord, which is contained in its accurate form in John chapter 2, verse 19, where it says, he said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. And uh, John added, uh, he spake of the temple of his body. They said, he said, I am able to destroy this temple and build it in three uh, days. Well, when the high priest <coughs> heard that, <coughs> he jumped to his feet as he had to when uh, uh, addressing the prisoner and, uh, and said to him, what do you say about this evidence? What is your comment? But the Lord never answered him a word. 
he maintained absolute silence. The high priest then changed his tactics and uh, questioned Christ as to his claim to be the Messiah and the Son of God. Two claims, the Messiah and the Son of God. It was the second claim that was so very serious in their eyes. Many had claimed to be Messiah. That wasn't criminal. I mean, if a, if a crackpot here or a fanatic there wanted to say he was Messiah, that was up to them. And if people were silly enough to follow them, that was too bad. But it wasn't criminal. But according to the law of God, to say that you were God, that was blasphemy. And according to the law of God, a man who committed such grave blasphemy should be stoned to death. So they were seeking to catch him. Uh, he questioned him on these two things. His claim to be the Messiah and his claim to be the Son of God. He compelled Christ to answer by placing him on the most solemn oath known to the people of God, which is that I adjure you to swear by the living God. I adjure you by the living God. Christ was compelled to answer that. Uh, and his answer was simply, that is correct. And I'll tell you something more you shall see the Son of Man coming uh, with power uh, and great glory. He quoted Psalm 110 where it says, uh, my Lord said to, um, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand, and Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. You've got that in this verse 64. Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Henceforth you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That was too much. The high priest needed no further witnesses. He needed no more evidence. Before their eyes and in their hearing, Christ had committed the gravest blasphemy possible. He had claimed not only that he was the Messiah, but that he was God. Now, according to Jewish law, concerning blasphemy, the judge must stand up and taking his garments, lift them up, must tear them. This signifies the uncleanness and the guilt attached to the blasphemy. So Caiaphas very happily uh, stood up and tore his garments and said to the crowd, What need is there of any further evidence? You've heard the blasphemy yourself. What is your verdict? And the session stood up. And uh, their verdict was, he is guilty of death. 
he is guilty, he deserves to die. It only remained, therefore, for them to take him to the official session called Daybreak, which we have in chapter 27, verse 1 and 2, and to rubber stamp the findings of this illegal and unofficial session of the Sanhedrin. I suppose we can say <coughs> that uh, the fact that there was little justice or truth in the proceedings of this session is evidenced by the closing scene. Matthew tells us that these venerable, white-haired, old gentlemen, representing the oldest and most aristocratic and noble families of Jure, representing the mind of God and the law of God and the word of God, these old venerable gentlemen were so moved by rage and spite that they flocked around the prisoner and spat on his face and knocked him about with their fists and slapped him on the face and jeered at him saying if you are the Messiah if you are uh, the Messiah Tell us who it was that struck you. Give us his name. Since you are God and know everything, tell us. That's how the scene closes. And that's where we leave it uh, tonight. It is only the beginning. That is the unofficial session. The Lord has before him hours and hours of court hearings. Well, whilst all this was happening, something else was happening. In the courtyard, Peter was going through an experience that was to leave its stamp upon him for the rest of his life. And a little way away in Jerusalem, farther, a little farther away, Judas, was doing something. One was filled in the end with sorrow and the other was filled with remorse. One wept his way back to the presence of God and the other wept his way into hell. It all happened at the, more or less at the same time. Well, Let's pray, shall we? Now, dear Lord, we do pray that somehow by thy Spirit thou wouldst convey to us what thou didst face for us and what thou didst go through, Lord, for us. When thou didst say about that cup that the Father had given you, shall I not drink it? Lord, we, we are amazed at thy love and thy grace. That endurance of love that made thee go right through to the finish. Lord, we thank thee and we worship thee. Because here this evening we are 
a little handful that represent the fruit of thy travail, the fruit of thy suffering, Lord. And we thank thee and worship thee for it and pray that, Lord, we might know more and more of what it meant to thee to win us. We ask it in thy name. Amen. Amen.